We are truly blessed to have Dane Hernandez and his family's families over here serving with us. Great blessing that they are. Dane is preaching in our Spanish language service right now, but what a tremendous blessing this family is to our church family. So glad that God has called them here. But you know, he may have spoken, his message may be your message this morning, and maybe God has used this video to speak to you. And again, like he said, if we can be of help to you in any way, please call on Dane, call on me, call on any of our ministry team. Turn with me to Mark chapter 9 this morning, verses 30 through 37. One week from tomorrow is President's Day, so I want you to do an exercise in your mind right now, not out loud, but in your mind, how many U.S. presidents can you name? There are 44 of them. And if you are an average American, you can name eight. Eight out of 44. In fact, only one out of 10 Americans can name 10 of them. Most of us can name eight. Really? The highest position in our nation? The leader of the free world, probably the highest profile position on the planet, and the average American forgets 36 out of 44 of them? Wow, how desirable is greatness, really? We're going through a sermon series entitled Point of No Return, and I've shared with you how Jesus and his disciples were in the northern part of Galilee in the Caesarea Philippi area, and he asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? The disciples responded, well, some say you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets or John the Baptist, but he said, but who do you say I am? And Peter spoke up and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And with that one statement, everything changed in Jesus' ministry. Once that confession was made, it was the watershed moment. Now all of a sudden, Jesus steadfastly sets his face toward Jerusalem. He's about to go down the cross. He's a lot more direct with his statements. He's a lot more blunt. He's a lot more serious. Some people say he's a lot more harsh in the things he says. He talks about discipleship. Enemy activity increases. He is headed to the cross he has reached the point of no return. And the next five things that happened after Peter's statement are critically important. And so that's the five-week sermon series we're looking at. Those five things that happened. Week number one, we saw where Jesus told his disciples, stop doing some of the things you're doing. And then week number two, we saw wherever he said that he was taken up on a high mountain and transfigured before them. Peter, James, and John with him, and, and his, eye, his eyes, his hair, his face, everything began to glow. His clothes began to glow. And then the following week, last Sunday, we saw he came down from the mountain. And at the base of the mountain is a demon-possessed boy, and the disciples were powerless to cast them out. And now this morning, they began to make their way from Caesarea back down to, to, to Capernaum. And all that's on the disciples' minds, one thing, I want to be great in the kingdom of God. 
And Jesus said, you're so mistaken. Read with me verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they would argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Let's look at this story and see how it relates to us. Letter A on your outline, the heart of Jesus. Now, as I mentioned, Jesus and the disciples had been in the very far northern part of Israel... Their place called Caesarea Philippi. In fact, here's a picture of what they were looking at. This is currently today Caesarea Philippi. Looking to the north, that is Mount Hermon, the highest mount in Israel. They share that along with Syria. Syria owns the backside of it. They put a ski resort up on their side. Israel has intelligence from the government on this side. That's Mount Hermon. That's what the disciples would have been looking at for the last five months. And now they began to make their way back down to Galilee. It's 50 miles. 50 miles from Caesarea to Capernaum. Where verse 30 said they were going. Takes us about an hour and 15 minutes on the tour bus to drive that 50 miles. We go from Caesarea to Philippi to Capernaum. Takes us about an hour and 15 minutes, but if you're walking it like they would have been doing, they would have been walking, it takes about 20 hours. But Jews walk more slowly, so it took them days. That's why you'll notice in, in, a lot of times in the Bible it says they went from Jericho to Jerusalem and it took days. It's only 15 miles. Why did it take so long? Well, Jews walked very slowly. That was a part of their nationalistic pride. They walked very slowly, heads held high, part of the pride of who they were. And so they walked very slowly. It would have taken them days to get from Caesarea Philippi down to Capernaum. The imperfect tense is used, so it means that they moved from place to place, didn't stay anywhere long, but as they're going all the 50 miles, Jesus only talked about one thing. That's all. His impending death. Jesus began to speak to the disciples, and he told them now for the second time, uh, guys, I, I, the Son of Man is going to Jerusalem. And he's going to be delivered over into the hands of some angry men. And they're going to betray him. And they're going to kill him. But he's going to rise on the third day. Now I want you to notice the wording he chose very carefully. 
He's going to be delivered. Didn't say he's going to be taken. He's going to be delivered. If you notice on your screen, the word paradidomy is used. It means to hand over. It's what's called a divine passive. Somebody has more power, but they let somebody else do something. So Jesus had the power not to be taken, to be crucified, but he gave them his life. He had the power, but he willingly let them take him. You know, like sometimes whenever you're like playing with your child when they're really little and, and they grab hold of you and you go, oh, I can't get loose. He's got me. And you could get loose. I used to do that. My son would come up and grab me. Oh, he's got me. I can't get loose. I couldn't get loose now, but, but back then I could have. <laughs> I, I had the power, but that's the word used. So the Son of Man is going to deliver his own self up to die, but in the third, on the third day, I will rise again. He uses the active voice. He'll rise himself. And he talked about this constantly for 50 miles, day after day. Now here's a couple of thoughts I had. As they're walking from Caesarea Philippi to Capernaum day after day for 50 miles, and Jesus constantly told them, I'm going to be betrayed, delivered into the hands, going to be killed. I wonder what Judas was thinking. He's with them. Guys, I'm going to be betrayed. I don't know if he turned and made eye contact with Judas or not. I wonder what Judas thought. That's me. And the second thing I noticed. Noticed in this statement he talked more about the cross than the resurrection. Did you notice that? He talked a lot about the cross. But just makes a reference in the third day I'll rise. The cross was what he emphasized. Because you see, the cross is where our sins are atoned. The cross is what we need. The cross is that place that all of your sins can be nailed and and, and atoned for. The cross is what we need. You see, we want to bypass the cross and go to the resurrection. We, We like the empty tomb better than the cross. That's why churches are full on Easter but not on Good Friday. We like the resurrection. But he talked about the cross. Because that's where your sin's paid for. Notice the disciples. There was 32. They didn't understand. Once again, the imperfect tense is used. They didn't understand day after day after day. Day after day, 50 miles, he talked about it. Day after day, 50 miles, they didn't understand. And the word they did not understand is interesting. That's used, you'll see it on your screen, it's the word agnio. It means to be ignorant or not to know. We get the word agnostic from it. The word, an agnostic is somebody who believes there's a God, we just can't know him. And so the disciples did not, they did not know what he was talking about. They were ignorant day after day. But they were scared to ask him, why? 
Why would they be afraid to ask Jesus? Well, if you think about it, the first time he predicted his death, Peter spoke up and said, no, 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 Jesus, you're, you're not going to be crucified. Don't talk like that. And he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. So they're probably thinking, I'm not going to say that again. Or it could have been, you remember last Sunday, whenever they went down the mountain and the demon-possessed boy could not be cast out and Jesus looked at them and said, you faithless generation, how long do I have to be with you? I've been with you three years. Are you not any more spiritually mature than to cast out a demon? And they're probably thinking, we're not going to ask anymore. So they just didn't say a word and day after day he said it. And they were quiet. Go to letter B on your outline, the desire of the disciples, verses 33 and 34. They finally arrived at Capernaum 50 miles later. Capernaum was the headquarters of Jesus' home base for ministry, but also the place where Peter lived. He had a home across from the synagogue. We see the remains of it when we go there now. Lived there with his family. His mother-in-law lived there. Peter had a house. Here's a picture of Capernaum today. As you enter the old gates, you'll see there this sign. Capernaum, the town of Jesus. Capar means village or city. And Nahum was the city of whom it was named after. Not Nahum in the Bible, one of the Old Testament prophets, but probably another Nahum. But it's called the town of Jesus. They finally got there. And they went into a house. We don't know whose house. Probably Peter's house. And they went in and it's quiet. And Jesus asked a question. The disciples. Guys, what were you talking about among yourselves for 50 miles? And they didn't say anything. Now, the word that's used there for Jesus asking the disciples, the word ask there is interesting. You'll see it here. The word aperoteo, which means to interrogate, to demand an answer, to accost. So it was a little harsh tone. It was direct. It was challenging. It was more like, guys, what were you talking about? Tell me. I want to hear. Come on. What were you saying? answer him because you see what they were talking about was who's going to be the greatest and they were embarrassed were silent the hidden topic is now brought to light and the word great is used there maison it means strong or large or great so for 50 miles Jesus keeps talking about his death and they keep talking about who's going to be the strongest who's going to be the largest who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God and once again the imperf imperfect tense was used so that's what they talked about over and over and over and over for 50 miles what an image think about it the rabbi would walk first. The disciples would follow several paces behind, just like any Jewish rabbi in those days. So the picture was Jesus would be ahead of them. He'd be walking, looking straight ahead, talking about he's going to die. And right behind them, they're following along. 
I'm going to be greater than you know. I can't wait to get into his kingdom. He's the Messiah. We're going to rule over Rome. I'm going to be second in charge. No, I'm going to be second in charge. I went on the Mount of Transfiguration with him. I'm a favorite of his. I'm going to be in charge. And all the way, that's what they're talking about. And he keeps talking about his death. What a jarring juxtaposition. It'd be like somebody being on their deathbed and a relative stands there and keeps talking about the will. Can you imagine? I'm laying there. Oh, Lisa, I'm sure going to miss you in Camden. Yeah, yeah, that's bad. Where's the will? <laughs> oh, I'm sure going to miss you all. I'm going to, what's oh, going to be bad? I'm going to miss all of you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How much is it? How much we get when you die? That's what it is. Now, Kenneth Wiest, who is a, was, was a brilliant New Testament scholar, he said that the, in his opinion in studying the passages, he believes the argument began with the three primary disciples, Peter, James, and John. If that's true, what started it? Transfiguration. Guys, Awesome. We were standing there, and I mean, his face began to glow, and his hair began to shine, and his clothes were bright. His kingdom's going to be amazing. I'm going to be there. I'm going to be first. Did you see? Guess what happened? Moses showed up. Elijah showed up, talking to him. The three of us were there. We're going to be greater than y'all. We got to see it. You nine didn't get to see it. Maybe you can be one of our servants, though. Well, we're gonna, we follow him just as much as you do. And I can hear them all the way. Did the transfiguration start the argument? Jesus asked him, What are you talking about? And it's quiet. All of a sudden, he did something. Let her see on your outline like a child. Awkward silence in the house, and he walked over and he sat down. That was the position of a rabbi to teach. So they know a teaching's coming. He sat down and he said, Men, if you want to be great, you've got to be last. And if you want greatness in my kingdom, you have to be a servant. Now, I want you to notice something here. Jesus did not condemn their ambition. He did not say, well, you guys, are, you shouldn't want to be great. What are you thinking? He didn't say that. He said, if you want to be great, let me tell you how to do it. Your ambition's not wrong. You're going about it the wrong way. He uses a first-class conditional clause. He didn't condemn their ambition. Some people believe Jesus condemned all ambition and none of us should ever be ambitious about anything. Not what he's saying. Who's the ambition for? Why do you want to be great for yourself or for others? So their greatness must be defined by a new kingdom ethic. 
service. Man, that's hard, isn't it? It's hard. Because our tendency is to put self first. Benjamin Franklin um, was not a believer in Jesus. And he, he admired George Whitfield. They were friends. He, he admired George Whitfield's faith. But Benjamin Franklin himself was not a believer, even though he would go hear George Whitfield preach. And Benjamin Franklin one day decided he wanted to be a better person. So he made a list of the virtues he needed in his life, the qualities that he needed in his life. So he made out the list, and he went down them, and he said, every time I felt like I accomplished that virtue, I checked it off of my list, and I felt really good about myself. I've conquered that virtue, and he said, I would conquer one, I would go to the next, and I was really doing pretty well until I got to one of them that really threw me, and it was the virtue I'd written down, humility. And he said, just about the time that I thought I had it, I became pleased with myself. And it was the one virtue that whenever I thought I had it, the moment I had it, I lost it. It's hard. Self does not like to step aside, ever. It's natural for yourself not to step aside. So if you ever put yourself aside, it has to be supernatural that does it. God. That's why some of you have never trusted Jesus as Savior. You know you need to make the decision to receive Christ. Those of you online, some of you do as well. But yourself is too proud and you, you won't do it. You won't come up here and talk to a minister. You won't give us a call. Because self does not want to step aside. It's hard. So they're in the house. Jesus is sitting there. Men, if you want to be great, you have to be last of all and servant of all. And they're listening and they gather around in like a circle. And Jesus did something interesting. He got up and he went over and got a little boy. Some theologians believe it was Peter's little boy. He was in Peter's house. Got a little boy and took him and put him right in the middle of the disciples. You see, that's where the disciples wanted to be, in the middle of everybody. But he put a little boy in the middle. And the Bible said that he, he embraced the boy. Now the word embrace that's used there, it's a compound word, it's a fascinating word. It's agkos, which means bend or crook, like the bend of your arm, where your elbow is. And the word, the prefix in in front of it means to envelop our, so Jesus, in fact a lot of paintings that depicted this showed it accurately in the years that followed. Jesus took the little boy according to the word, put him in the crook of his arm and embraced him and hugged him. So Jesus is sitting there, got the little boy, put him right in front and grabbed him and just hugged him tight and said, guys, if you want to be close to me, like this one, you've got to be like him. Why? 
Why a child? Jesus used a child several times in his ministry and brought them and hugged them like that and would tell people, if you, if you don't receive the kingdom like this little child, you'll never enter it. But why a child? Because in Greek culture and Roman culture, there was no one lower. You say, well, what about women? No, no, no. Children were lower than women Well, both of those cultures. Child was the lowest. Why? Well, think about it. Children have not accomplished anything. They've not achieved anything. They have no accolades they can brag about to you. They have no power. They're weak. You're stronger than they are. They have no honor. They're dependent. You have to take care of them. And they're ignorant. And what I mean by that is what the rabbis meant by it. Rabbis called children ignorant. They would not teach any child under the age of 12 the Torah. They were ignorant. That's what rabbis said. So Jesus took this weak unaccomplished, dependent, ignorant human being and said, if you're not like them, you'll never be great. The disciples were stunned and shamed. And he said, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And not only receives me, but receives the one who sent me. You'll be received by Jesus and God. Because you see, whenever you humble yourself and serve, you lose your identity and you take up his identity. A number of years ago, St. Paul School of Theology in Kansas City was looking for a new president. You'll see the picture on the screen here of the St. Paul School of Theology outside of Kansas City there, looking for a new president. And so the search committee gathered together, started going through names, and they narrowed their candidates down to five for the new president. They couldn't decide on these five. So somebody on the committee came up with a good idea. They said, listen, why, why don't we go to all of the institutions of our five finalists where they are presidents or leaders now? Let's go to those five institutions. Let's find somebody who is the lowest ranking person that works there. I mean the very lowest person on the org chart. And let's talk to them and find out what they think about the leader. Good idea. So they did. And after talking to all five of the lowest ranking workers in all five institutions, one name always came to the top, William McIlvaney. The lowest worker of his institution said, Mr. McIlvaney is amazing. He treats all of us with respect. 
doesn't matter our rank, doesn't matter our pay grade. He treats everyone as special, telling us we're all important here. And the committee said, that's our man. Because if you want to be great, it depends on how you treat those people who can't do anything for you. A servant is the way to greatness. And when you serve the least, you've served the king. I know many of you have heard the name William Carey before. He was a cobbler in England in the 1700s. Got saved. Called by God to be a preacher. Here's William Carey's picture you'll see on the screen there. Called to be a preacher. Called to be a missionary. So in 1793, went to Calcutta, India to tell them about Jesus. It was William Carey that uh, believed that every Christian, he had the passion that every Christian, no matter where you lived, must do your part to be involved in missions. And so he wrote an essay entitled, quote, An Inquiry into the Obligations of All Christians to Use Their Means for the Conversion of the Heathen, end quote. And with that essay, Baptist Missionary Society was formed. And William Carey became known as the father of modern missions. We take up missions offerings today because of what William Carey started. He served in India for 41 years without any furloughs home. And he said, I loved it because I was serving the king. His son, Felix, his oldest son, said that he would follow his dad to India. And that was his plan. I'm going to follow my dad to India, and I'm going to serve as well. But, but right before he left to go to India, something happened. Felix, the oldest son, found favor with the Queen of England. She liked him. And so she appointed Felix to a lofty position. She appointed him to be the British ambassador to Burma. It was a position of highest honor in all of England. Felix's father, William, didn't see it that way. So William Carey wrote a friend of his a letter asking him to pray for his son Felix. And here's what he said. I'd like to ask you to pray for my son Felix. He has lowered himself and denigrated himself into being an ambassador for the queen when he could have served the king. Pray for him. You see, William Carey realized what the disciples did not. And that is... Greatness is not found in position or influence. It's found in service. And when you humble yourself and take up his identity, you become great. 
Let's pray together. Father, thank you today for your word and thank you for the teaching of the disciples. And I pray the very same teaching you taught them will resonate with us. God, may we be great in your kingdom ethic. Father, I pray for those in our congregation that need to make decisions today, Lord. Maybe that maybe there's a decision of they need to lay aside their will and take up your will. God, I pray for those online and pray for those in person both that need to trust Jesus as Savior, but self will not let them do that. And I pray today they will set self aside and supernaturally turn to you. Father, thank you for teaching us what greatness looks like. Thank you for embodying it in yourself by becoming a servant, humbling yourself, taking up a cross to the point of death. And we're thankful for the example you gave. May we follow that. In Jesus' name, amen.